Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Big Scoop podcast. Thank you very much for joining us again. Hello. Episode eight, Gemma. Here we go again. I know. It's really whizzing by. So coming up, we've got Andy Torbett back to talk to us about tech diving and Vitaly. And also we've got some facts, figures, background information on the, the Britannic. Uh, before we get into that, what have you been up to? Yeah, well, obviously it's a bit difficult doing any diving. Yeah, just keeping up my diving fitness, lots of running on the beach and then doing some fitness classes in the garden. Um, and then obviously I was supposed to qualify this weekend. That has been put on a hold and hopefully will happen later on in the year. Plenty to keep you occupied online as well with various things through all the different diving agencies and people posting lots of different things and funny things on facebook instagram uh, it's been brilliant i just want to say thank you very much for everybody as well for helping us get over the, the first 100 drivers to currently up to about 130 plus now on youtube but we're not stopping there because we need more Oh, we've made some good progress. So. Need to say hello to our dude John as well. Josh, who's been helping us in our YouTube channel. So thanks, Josh. And we've been obviously lining up lots of coming episodes with some interesting guests. I am excited, I have to say, and I find it quite unbelievable that we've got the calibre of the guests that we've got. The last person we interviewed, I could have just spoke to for hours, you know, because it's like, wow, it's brilliant. That, you know, they give us this time to talk to us and share their experiences and their journey, top people of their game. And you learn, don't you? We learn yeah. from the... Learn a lot. Yeah, well, it's all for the listeners' benefit as well. So hopefully we'll be able to inspire and... That's, that's for them. Yeah. Not for me. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were just doing it for my benefit. No! <laughs> You inspire all these divers and non-divers, get them yes, really yes, excited yes. to get back in the water. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> and they just want to speak to you, Ian. <laughs> do you want to speak to Ian? Oh, yes, yeah, we'll come on the show. Of course. Moving on swiftly. Right, what do we know? Well, it's part of the Star Line, and it's obviously sister ship to the Olympic and the Titanic. And it was it was the last one to be built of the three. And they did change the design of the Britannic because the Titanic actually sunk. They put more lifeboats on it and added more, I think, watertight compartments. So it's actually launched in 1914 in the February. And it was supposed to be a commercial vessel, so taking passengers around the world. But because of World War One in 1914, it actually became a hospital ship in 1915. And uh, the captain of the of the ship was Captain Charles Butler. Mm-hmm. Uh, early deployments involved the evacuation of wounded men during the ill-fated Gallipoli campaign in the eastern Mediterranean and her work continued as casualties on the Macedonian front mounted. Mm-hmm. It had done a few trip bringing soldiers back from their various um, places of action and I think it was on its fourth fourth voyage back uh, when it actually came a cropper basically. So at quarter past, well just before quarter past eight in the morning on the 21st of November 1916 
1,065 people on board. The ship was uh, transiting in a narrow strait south of the Greek port of Iris. I hope I got that right, near the island. Iris. Iris, is it? In the Aegean Sea. Yeah. I knew I'd get that wrong. I knew I'd get that wrong. <laughs> so it's in the Aegean Sea near the island of Kia. Um, at 8.12 a.m., a large explosion was heard and initial reports suggested the cause was either a mine or a torpedo. It wasn't until 1990s confirmed it was actually sunk by a mine, although damage was extensive and only six of the watertight compartments flooded and the ship remained afloat. But as it listed, water began to enter, enter through the open portholes on the starboard side. Yeah, and that's actually why keeled over and actually sunk. And it sunk pretty quickly. It only took 55 minutes to go down. Titanic took two hours and 40 minutes. So the captain, so Captain Bartlett, he basically steamed the ship full steam ahead to try and beach the ship off the island of Kia. But what he realised was is that he actually was making it worse and the water started coming in. Mm. So he had to very quickly uh, make it stop and couldn't take the ship. So he's actually three miles off the shore of Kia. It was still quite a distance and it sank in it's about 120 meters deep yeah and it is a particularly difficult wreck to dive because of the conditions in the Mediterranean it can change quite quickly strong currents um, so generally any expeditions that have gone out there have taken a long long time to plan we're talking you know years not a couple oh of yeah yeah definitely yeah there's, um, um, as you say it's down at 120 meters uh, there's a huge hole just beneath the forward well deck when it went down the ship is that big uh front of the boat was actually laying on the seabed was buried into the seabed while the uh stern was actually still on the surface yeah. it's that you know it's that big and you think that today's boats are actually much bigger uh the wreck was located by mr jack posto He's the main man he's, he's back in the 70s he was the so he found that in 1975 yeah, and there's an English guy that actually owns the boat. Um, he bought it in 1996 for £15,000 just to prevent the wreck. Or give it some protection and stop it from being looted as well, which is... Yeah. And I don't think anybody can go inside the vessel um, as it's so protected by the Greek authorities as well. So that is the Britannic. So with no further ado, let's welcome Andy back and let's hear about and he's diving a bit more, and the Botanic. Woo! Hey, Hello, Andy. You're right. Hello, hi. Yeah, it's all good. Have a good day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all ticking along, you know. It's, uh, it's beautiful weather outside. Can't really do much, but um, it's what it is. Okay, um, so you're a qualified technical diver, so hopefully we'll have some technical divers listening in, um, and a closed-circuit rebreather diver. What drew you into the whole technical side of diving? Was it a decision, or did you kind of drift into it? Uh, chicks and drugs, really. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, it's all about... That's just about because yeah, to be you're, honest, you know, rebreathers are babe magnets. They're really, really not. They're really not. Nothing could be nothing could be more. Do- my my, my fiance, who we we've been together like fifteen and a half years, and literally, if one of my friends is around and we start talking about re- three rebreathers, and she dies, but she just leave the room. She'd be like, "You're just boring me," you know. <laughs> the most boring chat in the world. Hi, uh, do you want to hear about a rebreather? No. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> 
So, um, uh, well, sorry, get back, get actually ask the question. Um, it's exploration, you know, that, that's what I love about diving, it's exploring. And it doesn't have to be technical. You know, I, I, I say to people all the time that, you know, you can go, you can be a genuine explorer, not a kind of Instagram explorer, where I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an overly used word now, but to go somewhere and see something, a place that no one's ever seen before, you can do that with a snorkel. That's all you need. Something as, as simple mm. as a giant straw, because most of the, you know, in, in Britain, we've got 25-ish thousand miles of coastline, 10,000 miles of river and about 10,000 lakes, most of which is about six feet deep, and most of which, you know, has never been seen by anyone. So um, it's why I always clarify I'm, I'm an underwater explorer and not an explorer explorer, because everything I've, I've never really explored anything new, particularly on land. Um, uh, but rebreathers do open up things to you that open circuit just can't cope with. So, for example, we spoke before about doing this cave dive that's you know four kilometers in and then four out at 60 to 100 meters. Now, if you try to do that with an open circuit, you would need dozens and dozens of, of, of balls, dozens. Mm. Um, whereas with a rebreather, you know, see the, the, scr- the CO2 scrubber is, is what restricts you really. And the right conditions, you know, I've, I've run mine for sort of six, seven hours. Uh, you know, the manufacturer's guidelines are three, three or four hours, but you know, under the right conditions, and I know what those are. I, I can, I can, I know yeah. where to push it where I can't. So, we've done sort of six, seven, eight. I think, I think eight, eight and a half, almost nine hours, the longest I've done in one sitting. But those in really good conditions. Uh, Britannic was about six hours in the water, but again, in quite nice conditions. Um, so yeah, rebreathers just allow you to go go much deeper and, 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 and horizontally further for much, much longer. And also, I think tissue-wise, they're better um, for your profile because with open circuit, as you as you ascend and you change mixes, you're breathing an optimal mix only at one set depth. Um, so as soon as you leave that depth, it becomes suboptimal. Optimal, uh, whereas with a rebreather, you're constantly changing your, your gas mix as you ascend. And therefore, you're always breathing an optimal mix for your for your decompression, and, and so it's, I think it's kinder on your tissues. And frankly, it's warmer, which I always thought would was theoretically correct, but wouldn't actually make a real difference in the real world. But because the reaction that happens in the rebreather, the scrubbing out of the carbon dioxide, is an exothermic chemical reaction, it it, it, it creates a bit of heat. Um, so actually, the air you the gas you're breathing is slightly warm, and it does make a difference in cold water. It's noticeably warmer. Uh, dive in the rebreather than uh, than uh, than open circuit. Yeah. Oh, well, that was interesting. A uh, uh, quick question for you, just out of interest: What dive computers do you use? So when I'm, uh, I've got a D5 for normal bits and bobs. I've got a D6 for free diving, um, yeah. and then when I'm uh, rebreather diving, I've got sheer water that runs my my, my JJ rebreather, and then a Sunto Eon Steel as my bailout. And from cave diving and open circuit, which is pretty much the only time I, I would use open circuit now is when I'm diving British caves, really tight stuff, and I've got to go side mount. I've got an Eon Core and an Eon Steel as my two computers that I use. So one, you know, as a bailout. Um, yeah, that's that's what I've got at the moment. So why the difference? Is that to match with the kit that you're using? Well, the it's just what the design do. So the the Eon uh, the Eons, the Sundu Eons are um, they they've got CCR and hypoxic trimix capabilities. They're also big, well, they're physically big things like a like an iPhone size computer, which means yeah. it's really easy to read. In the dark, you know, and, and when the vis is bad, but also the buttons are really big. So again, you've got 
four pairs of gloves on because you know you're in the water for hours and hours and it's freezing you can still operate the buttons um whereas the d6 is a normal small watch size it's got a really good free dive mode it does do i think it does do some nitrox mixes and dive mixes but i don't use it for that I, you know yeah. I, so i use i use it for free diving it's got a free dive mode um it's much smaller i wouldn't want to be using a massive the, the, the eon steel looks like wearing a brick if, you, if you're diving like out in jamaica on bond when i was free diving there i was free diving just in a pair of shorts if you wore an eon steel it's huge you know it would look really really weird but with a dry suit and dry gloves on it looks fine and also be quite confident it's quite heavy so a d6 for that um and then and then the eon core is the backup to my eon steel it's slightly smaller but and um but again it's still got big buttons to operate and um you know it'll, it'll sit beside the, the, the steel and it obviously they all, they all run the same algorithms so they all are identical yeah. um which is quite handy and they all they all work the same way like seem to have never really changed yeah. right my first computer for like 20 plus years ago was that was a Sunto, and they've never really changed the functionality of the buttons so once you've learned one you can just yeah. you know like if you can work one you can work them all kind of thing they're pretty intuitive once you've once you've learned to work one so that's quite yeah. handy nearly all our students all start with Suntos and um the uh, school uh, use Suntos for their computers and what have you for that because they're you know they're fairly um, they're fairly easy to get the head around the menu system, aren't they? They're fairly, yeah. fairly standard. And if you want to progress, you, if you've got your head around the menu system from the start, it's easy to, easy to progress with your diving, I suppose, with yeah, for, for that side of things. And Eon Steel is a nice one to look at as well. And as a, as you say, it's a nice big screen on it. Yeah, I mean, to move the goal, it's massive. But actually, when you're wearing a dry suit, it suddenly doesn't look that big at all. And yeah. so when you put gloves on. It's. Um, I mean, I, I I couldn't operate my D6 with or not easily with um, you know four pairs of gloves on and freezing cold no. hands. Um, What's been your worst moment underwater or in a diving situation? I think I think I think I've had rags fail fail me in in uh, in caves, which is unpleasant. Um, but also again, cave diving we also have two. You know, I've done the system with enough to get out, so I've just switched to that one. And then swam out. Although you are then highly aware you've now only got one system, which the chances of both systems failing are, are pretty small. But when one does go wrong and you've got even just a few hundred meters to swim before you can get out on one system, that's quite a stressful, you know, um, a stressful few minutes. And then I had a helmet flood on me uh, at, at 50 meters. Uh, whereas in the forces, we were diving big sort of commercial. Uh, hard helmets, the big set with the Kirby Morgan 17Bs for the commercial divers that are watching the big, um, like yellow commercial diving helmets. Yeah. Uh, down at 50 meters and then out about 20 meters from the end of the shot line on a distance line, and we're practicing underwater demolitions. Um, and uh, what I think happened now, I didn't at the time, but I think a bit of grit. Something, something happened with the mushroom valve, and basically the helmet started filling with with water, uh, and you then basically you're wearing a big bowl full of water. Uh, and back then you didn't wear bcs your big lead boots on a big lead waistcoat so you couldn't self-rescue if you hold back up the surface and with all that cable out i was pulling in line but it wasn't any signals back so in a bit i was like well this is it this is this is you know so i kind of let leaned forward as you do when you try to run along the bottom of the seabed um and i ran along 
to the, the short line with the idea being, I'm just going to pull myself up, do 50 meters of just pull-ups weighing a ton to the surface. Um, I had a couple of hours of deco to do, but like, well, I'll just, I'll just bang through that. I wouldn't obviously not stop to do any deco. I'll be bent on the surface, but you know, that's, that, that's not bad. But even then I thought, I'm not sure I can hold my breath all the way from doing you know, a 20 meter run and a 50 meter set of pull-ups with wearing this, wearing this kit. But I got back to the short line and as I stood up vertical again, it must have knocked the grit of the stone or whatever was wrong with the valve and bang, the helmet just, the helmet just emptied. And um, yeah, I went back to work. Because yeah. it was the army, so you couldn't go, I want to come out, you just got to go, I've just got to stay down here and finish the job they sent me down here to do. So yeah, I, I turned around and cracked on and finished the dive. I just thought you'd, yeah, just don't think about things like that. It's just a... Thank you. Um, so what was your deepest dive that you did? I've done 100 84 meters but it was nice warm blue water um and it was actually it was a build-up dive for something deeper that never happened in the end but um but it's probably not the most hardcore i think uh, we did some diving a couple of years ago in a yamo mine in finland um and we have the maximum we got was 90 meters which isn't you know again these is not terribly deep but it's it's hundreds and hundreds of meters inside a a flooded mine system. So you're scootering for, I don't know, like 20 minutes through this labyrinth of, of huge chambers and, and tunnels, network tunnels, to get down to this 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 place. Um, and you rack up quite a bit of deco, but what makes it so hard was how cold it was. So we're breaking the ice to get in because the, the, the mine entrance is at the bottom of the lake. And inside the mine, it's, it's two degrees Celsius. Uh, and because it's fresh water, the thermocline is reversed. So from 20 meters to the surface, it's zero degrees Celsius. In fact, after four and a half hours in the water, we had to take off our bailout cylinders, our side mount, side slung bailout cylinders, because we're on rebreathers again, to smash the ice from underneath to get back out. Oh. Um, um, it wasn't thick, but yeah, that, that was the case. Um, and, um, you know, you've got to wait. If you're in the water for like four, four or five hours at those sort of temperatures, you've got such such amount of, of undersuit on. Obviously, you've got three pairs of, of warm gloves, a pair of dry gloves. You've got clown gloves on, a couple of hoods. You know, you get so much kit on, you just can't move. Like you can't, you can, you can barely reach behind you and, and you can't really feel anything. And you are, I mean, I was bored like hypothermic on every single dive. Um. So those are hard. Those are hard dives to do because they're, they're technically quite difficult. They're reasonably deep. You know, 90 meters is still reasonably deep. It's just still hypoxic gases and, and rebreathers. Um, but the cold makes it so much more difficult because the cold forces you to wear so much extra stuff that diving becomes hard work. You know, it's, it's easy to dive in a two-mil wetsuit, no hood, no gloves, easy. When you've got four pairs of gloves on, three undersuits, you know, two hoods, all that stuff, it just... It becomes much more challenging just getting just just you know getting in the water, getting out of the water, and, and doing the dive. Um, so, so and we're carrying big big torches. We're filming, so we're carrying big torches and all that stuff as well. And um, the other thing was you had to bring your A game, not because of the dive itself, but because of the people I was with. You know, I was with a like world class bunch of divers, be like Sammy Packerin and uh, Rich Stevenson, Phil Short. Um, Arne Angrimson, Gemma Smith, you know, there's a there's a, some real world class divers there, so you don't want to look like a complete buffoon in front of them either. Yeah. So, um, and um, did you just say you were filming for that one as well? 
Yes, that's a film made by Yanis Ahunen called um, Dive Odyssey 2018. So it's a 10-minute short film, but it's like a sort of sci-fi kind of art house film he made. Um, okay. um, so if, if for, the, for, for, for those folks listening, my screen just went a bit strange. Um, yeah, so that's what I've watched. It's, quite, it's, it's beautifully shot, and I've shown it to non-divers. Um, so it's not just technical divers. It's, it's not really about diving. It's about this kind of weird, abstract, sort of sci-fi sto- story straight from Yanni's um, amazingly weird brain. But um, it's just beautifully shot. And and it's kind of inspired by 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 Space Odyssey two thousand and one, um, uh, but it's a it's a great project to work on. Yeah, diving the Titanic sister ship, um, mm. the Britannic. Was that yeah. one of your dream of uh, dreams of yours, or do it because you were working with them? Both, because well, I mean, to us the first one, yes, it was definitely on. You know, if you're going to dive one wreck in the world, it's not a bad wreck to dive. Um, for a variety of reasons. One, I think initially was because it's a bit of a who's who of, of diving. It's not it was, it's becoming more open now. But, you know, I remember reading the old diver magazines when I think um, like Kev Gardner did 1998 Britannic Expedition and Rich Stevenson, Richie Kohler, Evan Kovacs, people like that have dived Britannic. Obviously, it's first found um, by Jacques Cousteau back in uh, what, 72. I can't remember where he found it now. Anyway, you know. So there's this list of literally world-class divers that are the Britannic, you know. Um, also, there's the historical element. You know, it is Titanic sister ship. It's, um, you know, it was being used as a hospital ship back in World War One. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it didn't sink in its maiden voyage. It, it did, I think it was on its fourth run to the Mediterranean. So it had been bringing injured troops back from the Med, like Gallipoli and that sort of places, back to the UK. Like three times as its fourth trip when it hit a main. And people say, "Oh God, another, you know, another White Star um, ship sank." Yeah, but to be fair to the guys, um, it hit a, a mine that was designed specifically to ship to sink battleships, you know, and it was just a, a liner. But um, I think the last reason is so there's, there's, there's kind of the, the, the heritage of the divers that have dived it before. There's the history of the shipwreck itself, but also the fact is, it's just a bloody good dive. Like it's a 900 foot long shipwreck. That is phenomenally well preserved. Like, fin- I mean, I, I'm not even sure what, how, why in those sort of waters it's so, but it is. It's phenomenally well preserved. Um, beautiful warm water, great visibility, 50 meter visibility. You know, um, but it's it's huge because it, even on, lying on its uh, its side as it is, it's still 30 meters from the top of the shipwreck to the seabed. So you know, if that was if that was a normal shipwreck and it's been the top had been lapped by the wave waves, the bottom would still be just on the very edge of most recreational divers um it's just a huge huge shipwreck and i mean and if that was in shallower water it would be the most dive shipwreck in the world that shall without um but yes yeah, it's, it's well worth doing and it's becoming more and more doable you know 120 meters uh, which is how deep it is isn't as deep as it used to be you know rebreathers are becoming much more reliable and user-friendly mixed gases are becoming much more prevalent we've, we've, we've learned a lot of mistakes uh, learned from mistakes along the way so you know the the kind of confidence we have in the algorithms and the tables and the gases themselves becoming better. So you know, 120 meters isn't as deep as it used to be. And just just going back to your footage for the um, Britannic, it's for anyone who's going to watch it who hasn't seen it yet. It's absolutely incredible. The footage um, from your point of view as a diver is absolutely incredible. And yeah. you know, from a, even a non-diver who goes, oh, but it's just a piece of metal the 3D mapping that you've put alongside so that you can actually see what you are looking at from the diver's point of view 
is incredible the way you've integrated them together so that you can see exactly what image you're looking at from under the water and for us as the viewers at home to see what you're seeing as well is absolutely incredible yeah the bbc the program they did a lot of uh, sort of almost cgi animations well to tell a story because it does explain stuff if you if you're not a diver and it can be hard sometimes to picture a shipwreck that's lying on its side, how that actually fits in. So, you know, the good job of explaining things um, with, with CGI and showing where the propellers and how it sank and, it, and something that the wreck makes much more sense then. And also the, the, the film itself, which are quite light, wasn't about Britannica, the shipwreck. It was using the shipwreck to tell the story of the people who worked on it. So it was kind of yeah. using diaries and, and, and eyewitness accounts to talk about the sinking, but also to unpack the, the life on board. So how the nurses and the doctors and the injured soldiers and all that. I don't, but, so it wasn't just about the sinking of the, of the Britannic. It was about the story of the people that worked on Britannic for, for, um, you know, for, the, for the time that it was in use. Um, yeah, that was good. That was good fun. That was good fun. And, you know, I got paid to go and die Britannic. It was pretty cool. And the best thing is, with terrible weather, high wind, and you often get the problem um, of Key Island, where Britannic is, you get big problems with the wind. And we had 10 days, well, actually we had seven days, and the wind was, was too bad to dive. So the BBC said, OK, we'll give an extension of three days, but if, it, if you can't dive by day 10, that's it, come home, shoot's over. And in day 10, the wind dropped enough, but the current picked up. And the captain, this Russian captain, was like, mm, not sure, not sure, not sure. So we got kitted up. We sat, you know, in, in the Greek summer, fully kitted up, dry suits, free beaters, just waiting for him to go, okay, go, and we're going to, like, literally throw ourselves off the boat before he could change his mind. And uh, about two in the afternoon, he said, okay, go, and we all just got off. Um, and uh, myself and three Americans. And we, it was the 11th of June. And the 11th of June is significant because... It is not only my birthday, as uh, it is also Jacques Cousteau's birthday. Wow. Not the same year, I hasten to add, but the same day. <laughs> I've Britannic on my birthday and Jacques Cousteau's birthday. So that was pretty cool. Mm, meant to be. Yeah. Have you got any plans to go back and do another dive on Britannic? I'd like to. Uh, I mean, it's not cheap, so I tend to have to try and get other people to pay for it by, by, by pitching uh, TV ideas or, or get involved in science projects. But, um, I mean... The one thing about it is it's, it's never really been explored internally. Uh, I think Richie Stevenson and, and Richie Kolar and Evan Kovacs have been in years ago, like 2006. They got just inside the engine room and, and that was it. But internally, there's a labyrinth. It's, it's basically a giant. It's 900, say it's 900 uh, feet long and what, 100 feet wide. It's, there's a labyrinth of, of cave systems based out of like a metal cave system. And no one's been, ever been inside it since it sank, sank what, what we're now, 104 years ago. Um, and the level of preservation is amazing. So I think the ballroom and some of the medical rooms and that stuff will be would make phenomenal dives. But you're not allowed to dive inside it. So if one day I could get special permission to actually penetrate the wreck, then that would be that would be a, that, that would be a, a lifetime yeah, yeah, yeah. dive. Why aren't you allowed inside it? Well, um, the Greek effort, who are like sort of the Greek version of English heritage, um, they they're quite. Um, strict about archaeology and, and the shipwreck is, 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 is kind of classed as archaeology. Also, there's been a few uh, fatalities on the shipwreck. Um, and although none of them have ever been to do with penetration, um, one of the things that the Greeks come up with was that decided that, you know, penetration was out. So for the time being, um, no one's had a permit to, to penetrate the wreck for like the last 
20 odd years. Uh, what was your best part of the dive? What was the best part of being on there? Um, I mean, I like, the, like a lot of these dives, especially if we, we found like a new shipwreck or we found out a mark that we think is a new shipwreck. And even though Britannia wasn't new, it was that sort of thrill. It's the free fall. It's the anticipation. It's like, you know, why Chris, Christmas Eve is better than Christmas Day, you know. Um, so, and obviously 120 metres, you've got, you've got a fair bit of free fall to do to get to get um, get from the surface. And as you, you know, you're in free fall, you're looking down and it's just, all you can see is sort of dark blue gloom. It's just minute after minute after minute. But you're just getting more and more excited about, you know, what you see. And suddenly, boom, the wrecks, the shipwrecks there beneath you. Um, so that's certainly, I think that's, that, that, that anticipation is always, I think, exciting on any any dive like that. Um, and, and so the level of preservation in things like we went to the, into the bridge, you can sort of, because of the roofs collapsed, you actually get into the bridge without without strictly penetrating. And the telegraphs there, so those are my telegraph is, it's that thing you might see on films when they're, when they're signalling, uh, full ahead or stop or full astern. It's like a sort of semicircle of glass with a big sort of metal and wood handle that goes back and forth. That is perfectly intact. The glass isn't even cracked, and you can sort of rub off some of the um, some of the sort of the, the silt. And under the glass is perfect white background, perfect you know clear black writing that says you know um, stop, full ahead, full astern. Um, that that was pretty. I think God, the, the the last person who who held this. And pulled it into stop, which and it still is in the middle position, still in stop position, was all do so by by Captain Bartlett. You know when uh, yeah. when the mine yeah. struck. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. When the mine struck. He thought because only a few miles from shore, he thought he'd try and beach the ship, so he drove it towards the shore, but it was sinking too fast, so he was he called a full stop and then got everyone to abandon. Was it a little bit surreal when you sort of saw something like that? Did it sort of? You know, you have sometimes you can see these things, and yeah, it sort of takes you back to how it must have been for them. Is it almost yeah, a little th- eerie? Sort of. I don't know, eerie, but certainly, I think it's little things are more evocative than the big things. A, a shipwreck does not conjure up the idea of human beings to me. A telegraph handle does, because a guy puts his hand there. There's a man, there's a person, a man's hand held that. Um, I dived a, a mine in, in Wales once because we've got a lot of flooded mine systems in the UK that have never been explored, well, never been rediscovered, we say, since since the, they were they were abandoned and you know the, the, the flood, the water table, because a lot of the mines were pumped out when they were being used, when they were deep. Um, and I was I, I, exploring one in Wales that um, someone put me on to. And at the entrance of one of the tunnels, the, um, you're about 30 metres down and then you go into the horizontal passageway and there's all this graffiti in the wall. Um, and it was from 1938. But the last guys to use this mine before it was when it was the last day it was in operation in 1938 were doing tally marks, and they'd, they'd make tally marks of the amount of carts of slate they were bringing up because that's how they appeared. And they'd written the guy's name was Ted Hughes, uh, 24 Jan 1938, 24th of Jan 1938. And you're thinking that that is more evocative than you know than anything else. So it's it's the little things that. Yeah. A human being, I think. I think held as well. You know, it's not like a, a corridor, or a, it's, it's like a door handle, or a, the, the the handle of a, of, a, of a telegraph, or a piece of graffiti that they actually wrote there. I think those little things are, are, are a far stronger connection to people. I think the medical ward would like really get you. I think when if you explore it and you manage to get down that, I think that would really like sink your heart. Yeah, I mean, the um, luckily there was no one on. No, they hadn't. They're on their way to pick up injured troops um, when it when it sank. So everyone on board was able-bodied. 
Um, otherwise, the death toll would have been massive. Um, and we must look in some of the portholes into some of the, some of the medical rooms. Um, obviously, all the stuff is kind of fallen to one side because it's tipped over on its side. And you can see the, the gurneys, these you know, the wheeled stretchers that they used in some of the beds and that there. Um, but they're more recovery rooms and operating theatres, so it's just a, a big pile of jumbled beds. So it's maybe not. But again, you know, things all personal. Some people find other parts of the ship far more evocative than others. You know, I, I didn't find the metal wards and the beds that evocative. I found you know, literally things like like door handles and things that somebody would have actually, you know, somebody actually would have touched. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, with all these things, it's very personal. Yeah, a bit like diving. You know, I've got friends who are hardcore wreck divers not just anything else but shipwrecks other guys who are all they do is cave dive they've never been in a boat before in their life you know and that's that's all they do so um but it's just fine you know horses for courses yeah we all like different things have you got any other wrecks that you're keen to dive um anyone that's not been discovered yet is always on the list you know that's the, the, <laughs> um of the ones that i'm known about there's a wreck called the the hms victoria or victory yeah, victory. Um, that's basically sunk off um, uh, Lebanon in the 1880s, but it's it's um, it's vertical, so it sunk bow first, and it sunk perfectly vertical. It hit the seabed, and the seabed's like about a hundred and fifty odd meters down. It's, I can't remember. It's, it's quite deep anyway. And the ship sunk in, so it hit the 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 seabed like a spear and penetrated the seabed about 20, 30 meters. So it's still stuck there. So, so the um, the propellers are at the top at like seventy four meters, and they are you know, the top of the wreck. The propellers, and you know, you you dive into this vertical shipwreck. And I think if you were to be able to get inside and get into the bow, the you know the chambers in the in the bow, you'd actually be underground because the the the, the, the last was it the front twenty meters, which is now the bottom twenty meters, are now actually under the seabed. So because it's sunk in, so that'd be quite cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it's amazing these wrecks. It's just yeah, all the unknown. Hmm. That's brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for you know, um, you know, for giving us some time to go through the interview and, and that with you. Let's talk about diving since we can't actually do any of the real thing at the moment. So uh, thank you very much. Cool. No worries, guys. Well, we'll uh, we'll hear from you later, and we'll hopefully see you again. And let's let's be optimistic and say we're we're back to diving by the middle of May. Yes. Probably not, but let's say so. I'll probably you know hopefully get back on the podcast in kind of September time. That'd be brilliant. Okay. Cool. No worries. Thank you very much. See you later. Thank Cheers. you. Thank Bye. you. Well, that was brilliant. Um, thank you very much for that again, Andy. And um, that's been totally uh, uh, inspirational and brilliant having you on the show. So thank you very much for your time that you've given us. And we look forward to catching up with you um, probably in a few months' time, really, and once we've hopefully got some diving uh, all in. So um, thank you very much, and we'll be speaking to you soon. Thanks very much, Andy. So that's episode eight. Now, let me just tell everybody, a little bit excited about our next guest as well. We've got a lady from the Bahamas who's joining us, and remotely, of course. She is known as the Sharp Listener for a very good reason. And if you keep listening to the show, she'll explain why. Yep. Her name is, can we say? Christina Zanato. Yay, can't wait. So really excited about Christina uh, joining us. You must tune in for episode nine 
tune in for episode nine to be out very soon watch out for the social media watch out for watch out for the youtube there's gonna be some lots of stuff on that as well as we if don't go away join us next time on the <laughs> scuba podcast thank you see you later Gemma. bye everyone bye everybody